right, we'll start with one of the great passages, obviously, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to focus on verse 7, but we'll read, uh, we'll read this section for context. Let's pray before we read. Oh, Lord, as we consider, really, the rigors of love, uh, the challenge of love, the, the radical nature of love, we pray that you would capture our hearts, because we know that we will never be radical in our love unless we really uh, begin to enjoy and welcome and trust in your love and admire it and adore you for it and be caught up in your love, uh, Lord. Then and only then could we begin to live out that love to others. So, Lord, bless us. Uh, make us rejoice in the love that you have for us and make us be those who have joy in our love for others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, familiar words, First uh, Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, it's verse 7 that I want to look at, and that's one of the most poetic lines in all of Paul's writings. Memorable, uh, we may have quoted it a lot. We may, if you're like me, you've misunderstood it a lot too. Like I used to hear, this means you always try to, you always try to hope and believe that someone is good, you know, that, that they mean well, that they mean the best. So you're always hoping the best in people, for instance. Um, and actually, what Paul does here is he uses a Hebrew method, a Hebrew uh, poetic technique. And you may have, I'm sure you've heard of it, but uh, a chiasm, uh, which basically means this. You start here and you end up this place, but that's not important in terms of the illustration. But what it, how it works is you have an A, then you have a B. Then you have a B, and you come back to your A. Okay? That's, that's your chiasm. And what, what it does is, of course, this and this go together, and this and this go together. And many times in a Hebrew, uh, even a historic passage, where there's this whole story of, this, of the chapter, it has this process. It goes into the middle of the chapter and then comes back out pretty remarkable. And the middle is the key to the whole passage. <clears throat> but you can actually trace it out. The writer tells the story in such a way that it may be an A down to F, you know, and back out to A. But the F is the big thing that generates the whole. <clears throat> so here in ours, these generate to the outside. So you've got love is it bears? Is that the first? Anybody? 
Okay, thank you. Bears all things. Then is it believes? Believes. Hopes. And then endures. Pretty obvious that bears all things and endures all things go together and believes all things and hopes all things go together. And indeed, these generate this. Because we believe and hope in who God is and what he is doing, has done for us and what he will do for us, then we endure and we bear all things. So, and remember, this is, what's he talking about? What's he talking about? Love. Okay. L-U-V. Love. (laughs) Okay. So, this is what love does. Love believes and hopes, and therefore love bears and endures. So there's this essential connection between faith and love. It's because we believe that we love and we love because we believe. So basically this verse means there is nothing love can't face. There is nothing love will not face. That is true love. It puts up with everything. It continues in the face of anything, endures and bears. It never ceases to believe and hope in God as it continually pours itself out for others. See, that's the key. Because of what it believes, the safety we believe that we're in God's hands and the beauty of what he has promised us, the hope of that, then we'll put up with anything. We're never going to stop loving because we have the resources in Christ to do that. We have the resources and the future to do that. In other words, we can confidently lose our own lives for his sake, knowing that God will enable us to find our lives. Remember what Jesus said in John 12, He who loses his life will find it. But you can't lose your life unless you think you're going to find your life. And he doesn't make you do that. He doesn't say, you're just going to lose your life and that's going to be it. He doesn't play that way. Because the reality is, he lost his life. He's exalted to the right hand of God. Humility gains authority. Humility means you're worthy or you've... You have the kind of character that is needed uh, to be a king or, or a queen. So we can lose our lives because we know he has our lives and he has our future. Now, Gordon Fee is a commentator on 1 Corinthians. Uh, I really like his commentary. And I'm going to, I'll read this twice, but it's, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read in a commentary. Love has a tenacity in the present Buoyed, buoyed, okay, held up. It's hard to pronounce. I'm not buoyed by its absolute confidence in the future 
that enables it to live in every kind of circumstance and continually to pour itself out in behalf of others. Again, love has a tenacity in the presence buoyed by its absolute confidence in the future that enables it to live in every kind of circumstance and continually pour itself out in behalf of others. That's a powerful, powerful love. That's a love that, that demonstrates itself in any and all circumstances, but it's only that kind of love because of faith, because of what it believes about God and what it believes about the future that it has in Christ. So that's why I have this second passage, a shorter passage, and it's the last phrase. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. In other words, it doesn't really matter if you're circumcised or not circumcised. That's not the big issue. What's the issue? It's faith working through love. Or the NIV has, I think is a, a bit better, clearer uh, translation, Faith expressing itself through love. So faith expressing itself through love. That's what faith does. That's what faith will always do. And if you see love, true love, it's because there is faith. See the connection between the two. And this confidence stretches out into the final day. John writes this. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. There you have your inner terms, right? We believe and know the love that God has for us. In fact, I think, I may have said this before, but um, I think this is a great description of conversion. It's when you come to know and believe the love that God has for you. And I've, I've actually talked to people a lot of people sometimes in counseling and they'll say, well, yeah, I believe that I believe that Jesus died for me. Yes, I believe he died on the cross. Fine. Good. Your sins are. Yes. Do you believe the love that God has for you? You know, start to I mean, that's a that's a huge thing to say. Do you believe and know the love that God has for you? Which shows itself, for instance, that I know all things are going to work together for good for me. I know that since he gave his son, he will withhold no good from me ever because I'm convinced of his love for me. That's strong. And, and God wants you to be convinced of his love for you. He wants it to free you, to strengthen you, to set you uh, free so that you can wildly love other people, you know. And same for me, of course. So we have to come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. And then this is where the rubber meets the road some. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. In other words, as he is in union with the Father, so are we in union with the Father in this world. But notice, <clears throat> if this love is perfected, is, in other words, if I have really come to know and believe his love 
and it really stirs me and moves me and comforts me and strengthens me, then it will show itself in that when I think of judgment day, I'll even then have confidence. No, I'll be fine because I know he loves me. I believe and know the love that God has for me. And he'll have that love for me in judgment day. He has it now and he'll have it forever. I belong to him. Wonderful, wonderful way to live. But then he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So if, if I'm convinced of his love, it casts out my fear so that I don't have any fear in judgment. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So there's another way to look at ourselves and say, do you fear punishment? Do you fear the coming of Christ? Because you're not sure what's going to happen. Well, ask God to open your eyes to be fully convinced of his love for you so that you have no fear in judgment. There's no fear of punishment because Jesus has taken away my sin. And that means that father fully loves me. And then here's the, so there's, there's believing in hope. And I'd say the bear and endures, or maybe summarize this as loves, you know, love in the face of uh, all opposition and difficulty. We love because he first loved us. And go back up to verse 16, because I know and believe the love that he has for me. If I know and believe the love he has for me, then it transforms me and I begin loving other people. Any questions? I know it's Sunday night, but we can ask questions if you want. Either very clear or you don't know what in the world I'm talking about. All right. All right. So, yes. Now, now that was the agape love you're talking about here, right? Yes. Agape love. Exactly. Christ's committed, dying love for his people. Right. Exactly. Now, here's where the rubber really meets the road. And I think Hebrews 10 is an absolutely perfect example of what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. So let's read this. Uh, The writer of Hebrews is writing to people who had obviously endured much for Christ. They're Jewish believers And Jewish believers suffered terribly from the Jews that weren't believers. And they were ostracized socially. They were cut off uh, economically. And as much as could happen within the bounds of the law, they were persecuted by their fellow Jews. So they had it rough in their society. and, And at first, they did really well. But year after year after year, This book is written at the point where many of these people were either apostatizing, turning away from Christ, or being tempted to turn away from Christ. So he's writing this book to reestablish for them how great Christ is in regard to Moses, in regard to the angels. He's underscoring the new covenant over the old covenant. All of this is to try to convince these Jewish believers, you've got to continue to hold on to Jesus Christ. Don't turn away from him. You lose everything. Even though it is hard, even though you suffered long, don't quit trusting in Christ. 
So you'll catch the flavor of that in this uh, passage. But you'll see at first he's recalling the former days when you really did well. We recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you became Christians, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you realize it's not just somebody in prison, it's fellow believers in prison. That's the context here. Fellow believers that have been imprisoned. And you had compassion on them. In other words, this isn't not, and we've, if you knew our church, we have a, we had formerly a pretty active prison ministry, both inside and outside. So not against that. I'm just trying to make clear, this isn't just a prison ministry. It's a ministry to Christians who've been imprisoned. Okay. It's very important. So for those Christians imprisoned, you had compassion on them. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, do you see that believing and hoping made all the difference in how they loved their brothers and sisters? It's the only reason they were able to, because here's the situation. You go to prison, you visit and show compassion and feed those who are hungry, clothe those who are naked, you, you take care of them, you expose yourself to the authorities. Oh, you're a believer too. And what was their concern about that? To, it's fine, okay. If we lose everything, it's okay. We can endure, we can bear the loss of all things because we believe and hope in that which cannot be taken away from us, our inheritance in Christ Jesus. Amazing example, moving example to, to me that they believed and hoped in God's care for them and his future for them. And that allowed them to sacrifice everything, even having all their, their possessions plundered. Remarkable to see this love on the ground. Now, here's where it gets really, really rough. I will have you turn to Matthew 25. We're going to read Matthew 25, which I know many of you are familiar with, but it's against the backdrop of Hebrews 10 and it helps us understand what Jesus is talking about when he describes the faith of sheep and the lack of faith of goats. And against the backdrop of Hebrews, this is, I would say, one of the most <clears throat> devastating passages to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat>
So we begin reading with verse 31, and your Bible probably has the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as, it, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And what devastates me about this passage is, in Jesus' mind, sheep are willing to lose everything to minister to one another. Goats won't do it. That's what's devastating about this. Sheep, and it's not because they're braver. It's not because they're stronger. It's not because they've been to war and nothing phases them anymore. You know, it's not that. It's that they believe in their future in God's grace. They believe in his salvation. The goats don't believe in his salvation. They don't believe in his goodness. They don't believe the love that God has for sinners. They don't. But the sheep believe that love and they believe it's so great that in judgment day they have nothing to fear and they believe it's so great that they have an inheritance that cannot be taken away from them. That's how they're convinced of the love of God. And so lose what they have to, it doesn't matter. So that's the faith of sheep. From 1 Corinthians 13, they hope and believe and they therefore endure and bear. You see it exhibited in the lives of these, uh, the Hebrews, uh, the, 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 those that receive this letter, even to the point of joyfully, and that's, that's a hard word, isn't it? Joyfully accepting because for them, it would be the saddest thing on earth if they didn't go and help their brother or sister. That would be misery for them. Not the loss of their property. That, that's not a big deal. Can't hurt them because they've got a future with Jesus. 
so they can joyfully accept it because we don't care. We wouldn't do anything except love our brothers and sisters that are in prison. Or any of these other things that, that are said. So I, I, I close with just a few more passages just to show you that again and again, this perspective of trusting in God's future allows us to continue in the present, right? Hoping and believing enables us to endure and bear. So 1 Peter 2, this is concerning Christ himself. And this is interesting. This is how Christ lived. This is why Christ did what he did. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, there's a great sense of injustice done to Christ. You might think, well, it didn't really bother him that he was treated unjustly. He didn't really even notice it. Oh, he noticed it. He hates injustice. Didn't matter that it was done against him. He hates injustice. How did he handle that injustice? He just trusted God who will deal justly with these people. And it freed him to what? Pray for them. Care for them. I don't have to worry about justice because that's in God's hands. That's in my father's hands. And I'm free to care for them. I don't have to revile in return. I don't have to threaten them. My father will take care of anything that needs to be done there. And I'm free to just to love them and care for them. And then later in Peter, he basically tells us to live that same way. We've quoted this before, but 1 Peter 4, 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And that word faithful. I'm suffering and I'm suffering because I'm trying to live and do good to these people. And I'm suffering from them whom I'm trying to do good to. And that could drive a person crazy, right? That, that I'm... I'm being hurt by people I'm trying to help. But what kind of creator? He's a faithful creator. He's faithful. He understands this. He's not going to let everything go. He's going to judge. He's going to take care of you. He's going to give you good in the future. All you have to do is to continue to do good. You don't have to worry about how fair anything is. He's faithful. He'll take care of it. And then in some ways, the most shocking passage is Romans 12. So it says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. That almost doesn't seem right, you know. Like you should, you, you might be thinking, I shouldn't even be thinking about wrath, you know. Well, you tell that to somebody who has had, who's seen her children and her husband slaughtered in front of her eyes. Tell her that, right? She has to entrust this God. She has to think, oh Lord, if this person who did this never repents, you will take care of that. You'll take care of that. I don't have to have vengeance back. I don't have to be bitter toward them. 
I don't have to try to get back at them in any way. Notice it doesn't say never avenge yourselves because that would be wrong, right? Which you'd expect the scripture to say. Who wants to take vengeance for yourself? You should never feel that way. That's not what he says. Don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's pretty shocking to me. When I first read it, read it, you know, think, okay, I'm not taking vengeance because I'm counting on you taking vengeance. Well, that's true. But what does it leave you free to do? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And the likely meaning is what you think, that you'll, it, it will cause him to be humbled and to feel guilty that he would do something to this person and this person keeps doing good back, right? It's a way to try to convince them over time uh, of the glory of Christ that is in your life. But here's, this is how serious it is. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So when evil is done to you, the most natural thing is bitterness, resentment, at least sullenness. I will never speak to this person again. Now, some things you have to protect yourself from. I understand that. But as a, as a reaction to want to get back somehow, to want to attack somehow, even if it's in your own mind, that would be overcome by evil. Evil is done to you and you spill evil back. What's the first thing kids, if they've been in a tussle, what's the first things they claim? He did it first. Oh, oh, that clears everything. He hit me first. Oh, well, did you pound him 80 times because he hit you first? Is that what you're right? That's, it justifies everything. I can be as absolutely mean to him as he was to me because he did it first. So it's innocent after that. And you see how silly that is, but that's what we do. I didn't start this. She did. I didn't say the first thing. He did. That's being overcome by evil, evil infecting me, me being pulled in to become a part of this evil, to image that evil, reflect that image back to that person. Uh-uh. We should be saying evil stops there. It's not going to take over my heart. It's not going to infect me. It's not going to poison me. It's not going to pull me into it. I get to have the freedom of love because God's going to take care of evil if and when it needs to be taken care of. That's the argument. I'm not overcome by evil. And this sounds weird, but this is scripture because vengeance is his. He doesn't tell you, hey, if you get treated unjustly, don't ever worry about it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're treated unjustly. God never says that. It matters to him. And justice matters to God. And it's going to matter a lot in the final day to God. You don't have to worry about that. And I would suggest to you, as I suggest to myself, 
He will do a lot better job of that than you could ever hope to, right? In fact, it's kind of like if you saw two kids uh, tormenting two baby black bears, would you be scared for the black bears? No, you'd be scared for them because they're messing with the mama's babies. They're the ones in trouble. And that can help you to think, however you're mistreated, have compassion. Because unless they repent, unless they trust in Christ, they're the ones in trouble, not you. They're the ones facing judgment, not you. Because vengeance is mine, the Lord says. But still, I want to point out, that's, that's still part of this. You believe in hope in the future whether it's the good that God will bring to you or the judgment God will bring on others. That frees you only to love and to not be overcome by evil. So I hope these passages can help you and me love people no matter what. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your incredible word that sustains us and frees us and tells us what really is going on and gives us a future to count on and, and frees us, Lord, so that in this world of great difficulty and mistreatment and injustice, uh, we can cast all of these things into your hands, knowing you will care for us, you will judge the world with righteousness and justice. And we are free to pour ourselves out constantly for the good of other people. Lord, what a life to live. We pray that we will image Jesus Christ who did exactly the same thing on the cross. May we be like him and shine forth his glory in Jesus' name. Amen.